0: Fellow marches, so much has changed in 50 years. We have endured war, and we've fashioned peace. We've seen technological wonders that touch every aspect of our lives. We take for granted conveniences that our parents could have scarcely imagined. But what has not changed is the imperative of citizenship. That willingness of a 26-year-old deacon or a Unitarian minister or a young mother of five to decide they love this country so much that they'd risk everything to realize its promise. That's what it means to love America. That's what it means to believe in America. That's what it means when we say America is exceptional. For we were born of change. We broke the old aristocracies, declaring ourselves entitled not by bloodline, but endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. We secure our rights and responsibilities through a system of self government of and by and for the people. That's why we argue and fight with so much passion and conviction, because we know our efforts matter. We know America is what we make of it.
1: Welcome to The Love Journalism Show. I'm your host, Darren Samuelson. Today's guest is Cody Keenan, the former White House chief speechwriter to President Barack Obama, a partner at the speechwriting firm Fenway Strategies, and the author of the book, Grace, President Obama, and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Cody, welcome to The Love Journalism Show.
2: Hey, Darren. It's good to be with you.
1: Let's begin by setting the scene a little bit. We are talking, you and I, here today. It's March 7th, and it's eight years since President Obama gave one of his most memorable speeches of his presidency in Selma, Alabama. Hard to believe it's been eight years. Uh, you wrote that speech. I wonder if you could uh, set the table a little bit, remind our listeners what that was all about.
2: Sure. Um, I mean, the, the the first thing I'll, I'll say is that I, I always got to point out that Barack Obama was always our chief speechwriter. Um, intimately involved in every speech and that was very true with this one we the first time it's rare that you get to write a speech where that you know that it's coming right where there's a there's a set date that's an anniversary something you know it's on your calendar the first time i'd heard about it was the night before the state of the union address that year and i had been working on that for you know weeks and i was exhausted and i just wanted to go home and we were in a the the last meeting of the night and valerie jarrett said um by the way, the president's going to speak at the 50th anniversary of Selma. And it was, you know, six weeks away, but my first reaction was just like, oh, come on, you know, which I didn't really mean, but I was just, I was wiped out. But so I I had uh, six weeks to think about that speech and write about that speech. And that's an an amazing luxury. You usually have less than one. So um, I went back and read uh, one of Taylor Branch's uh, civil rights trilogy books, The Pillar of Fire, just to get some really cool, um, you know, tidbits and stories in, in my memory bank for the speech. And so to, to really set the stage for it, uh, which is what you asked, um, you know, it's going to be the 50th anniversary of the marches from Selma to Montgomery uh, when, you know, a group of mostly young, mostly black Americans set out to march from Brown Amy Church in Selma, uh, 50 miles to the state capital, Montgomery. And it was um, it was for something pretty simple, the right to vote, which they had um but couldn't exercise. And, you know, they were they were demanding not special treatment, just equal treatment under the law like the rest of us. And they didn't even make it a mile out of town. You know, everybody's seen the Edmund Pettus Bridge and they didn't even make it across the bridge until uh they were met by state troopers um who uh who you know beat them and tear gassed them and turned fire hoses and attack dogs on them and it captured the nation's attention and the images kind of ricocheted around the world and and um you know, kind of lit a fire under President Johnson to do something about it. Who, and then he adopted um, uh, their hymn, "You Know We Shall Overcome," and said it at joint session of Congress. And um, so you got the the, the Voting Rights Act. Um, so it's pretty extraordinary, and the, the, just the simple symbolism that 50 years later, a black president would go there to pay tribute is is pretty awesome. And you know, there are certain speeches that you just can't screw up. Um, paying tribute to D Day paying tribute to Selma. You know, if you mess those up, you should look for a new line of work, but, but you can still look for opportunities to make it special. And um, the, I had prepared a draft um, that, that I thought was you know, pretty good, but, but needed the president's guidance as always. And I got pretty lucky. Two days before the speech, Washington shut down for a snowstorm. So uh, most of his meetings were pulled down. And I, so I went into the office and I just had pretty much unfettered access to him all day. And we sat down and he, he read the speech. We started talking about it and he had a couple ideas. I went back and gave another draft and he'd said, um, you know, in the first draft he said, you took a half swing on this, take a full swing. And he was right. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know where he'd want to go with it. So I just kind of uh, I played it a little bit safe and we were, um, we were looking for a little, a little grit, you know, what, what the speech kind of needed was a foil beyond you know the bull Connors of the world and Republicans who were who would come to pay tribute and then block the Voting Rights Act anyway or vote against the Voting Rights Act reauthorization anyway. Um And I'd always found that a good way to kind of shake loose um, some emotion from him is to is to get them all hopped up on you know whatever the political idiocy of the day was. Uh, enter Darren. The <laughs> I'd read I'd read your piece about. Uh, how Rudy Giuliani went up on stage at a conservative fundraiser and, and just kind of, he's, he's never been the most graceful when it comes to appealing to the base, you know, but, but he would give it the old college try. Um, and so he let loose this, this string this uh, string of, of word salad about how, you know, Obama doesn't love America. He wasn't raised here like you and I were. Um, and you know exactly what he's saying. And it's always something it's always a little bit sadder that they won't just come out and say it. But but you know what he means. You know, Barack Obama a double secret Muslim from Kenya uh, who is not a real American like you and me because he's black and different. Um, so that stuff always made me angry. You know, it made all of us angry because we loved we loved working for the boss. It, it never made him angry um he just had a thick skin i you know we don't have to go off on a tangent about it's probably due to his upbringing but so I, i i asked him if he'd heard that and he hadn't uh and his his first response was to laugh and say you know who the f cares what rudy giuliani has to say um but he said but it does bring up an interesting question worth taking on and that's what does it mean to be an american you know who gets to decide um you know the the I would argue this is still him talking. I'd argue that a bunch of young people getting their heads cracked in for the right to vote is pretty patriotic. Um and then he then he was really off on a tear. He was talking about Sarah Palin and bald eagles and you know um real America this real America that. He said let's just take that down, you know. And uh while we're at it, you know, we can we can tell the fuller truer story of America that this play, this is a big, messy country that's full of contradictions, and we've made mistakes. But we also, what really actually makes us exceptional, is that we have the ability to change, uh, and that it's often spurred on by, you know, nameless, faceless, voiceless Americans who who love their country and believe they can change it. And, and uh, over the over the course of that snow day, we got to pass five drafts back and forth, which had never happened before and would never happen again. Um, each one better than the last, and we just knew that it was a good speech, which is also rare that we would know that. Um, and he, I remember he emailed the night before the speech and he was like, this is great. I'm really proud of it. And that's just something that never happened.
1: It's a fascinating story. And I, I will say as the author of the the Rudy story itself, um, I mean, Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live, excuse me, spoofed uh, that Rudy uh, comment a couple of days later. Uh, it uh, ended up becoming a question that every presidential candidate, this is even three, four months before Trump, comes down the escalator, got asked the question, Do you believe Obama loves America? Uh, and then it morphed into a question of whether uh, President Obama is a Christian or not. Um, that was over the course of the whole year of 2015. I'm curious, why do you think those Rudy remarks broke through the way that they did? And and, and how did they? I mean, obviously, they're controversial at the time. Um, why do you think that they made such a so much noise?
2: It's a good question. I don't know, because, they, you know, it's not like they it's not like it was an original thought on the right. Um, it's stuff that Obama had been dealing with for years that we'd been dealing with for years. We had the whole dumb birth certificate thing in 2011. Um, I don't know why it would have broken through then. It's a really good question. What do you think? Because it because it really wasn't wildly different than anything Republicans had tried to say before.
1: A little bit more to the jugular. I think that's even the word I used in the lead that night was, you know, he went straight for the jugular. Um, I mean, it was, you know, America's mayor. So there was sort of the beginning of the Rudy change dynamic wise. I mean, we would see him, you know, go uh, much further uh, over the course of the 2016 campaign, but he hadn't quite gone quite that far. I don't think before. I I think he tried to spin his way out of it and say uh, he had been saying similar things. But, you know, before we published that story that night it never had really been out there quite that way.
2: Yeah. I I, I don't want, I don't want to rewrite history here. I can't remember when we stopped taking Rudy Giuliani seriously, if it was before that or after that. I mean, he, he, he really did have kind of a spectacular fall from America's mayor to, you know, walking punchline. Um, I just don't remember when that started, but yeah, I, I mean, the one thing I agreed with Obama on is who cares what Rudy Giuliani has to say, you know, um, that, Like I said, that, that kind of stuff always, it got under our skin, the speechwriters, um, in a way that it never did Obama. Uh, so it was nice to be able to punch back a little bit and Obama added, you know, in, in I think maybe one of the last drafts he'd added in a line about, um, you know, we were talking about that's what America is after we had told the stories of all these different, uh, this kind of like new litany of American saints, um, not some airbrushed history or, or, uh, um, I forget the next clause or, uh, you know, claims that some of us are, that is feeble attempts to define some of us as more American than others. And it was just kind of a rhetorical shiv uh, that, you know, Rudy heard.
1: Hmm. Do you think, I mean, had we not published that story, what do you think the speech would have looked like? Do you think it would have had, I'm sure, similar flair, but.
2: Yeah, I I know that, you know, as always, Obama would have lifted it somewhere it needed to be. But but your story made it a lot easier. by just, by just giving us that. So thank you. But yeah, without it, we would have had to find some other, I don't know if we would have come up with the, the whole, you know, what it means to be an American argument, maybe, uh, but it might've been a little less pointed. Hmm.
1: Do you think if, uh, you know, someone said the same thing today about a president, it would make the same waves and, uh, or is it, was it distinctly because it was in that moment before the Trump era and uh, about the first black president of the United States that it made the waves that it did?
2: Yes. Uh, I, I don't, you know, you said at Trump era, I don't think it would have the same kind of, um, uh, fast ball that, that, that it would, that it would have been back then. I mean, we've just come through four years of a, of Obama's successor who, you know, basically said everything there is to say about everybody. Um, so it doesn't really register anymore, which I think, you know, by and large is an unfortunate trend for our politics, but, um, I think you'd have to get like, look, it, Trump basically just tried to smear um, Ron DeSantis as a pedophile a couple weeks ago, and it like barely made a sound. So we've become kind of numb to this stuff.
1: You were with the president the entire uh, two terms, and uh, obviously going back to the 2008 campaign, you worked with him afterwards, um, and you've written speeches, obviously, for, for a long time. And I'm curious, this this whole conversation we're having, been thinking about it, The role that the media plays often without having any way of knowing in giving inspiration to speechwriters is a little bit, it's fascinating to me. And I'd be curious if you could unpack that a little bit. I mean, how much are you consuming the news as you're writing speeches and and how many other journalists out there probably without really knowing it until maybe five, six, seven, eight years later find out, you know, oh, wow, I actually helped inspire some important piece of uh, a presidential comment in American history.
2: Yeah, how about that? Well, <clears throat> I think before before you get too inflated, there's only a handful of presidential speeches that are ever remembered. Uh, your piece just happened to inspire one of them. Um, I was reading news all day, every day in the White House, and and that's purely. I mean, a you have to stay up on current events, obviously, um, but inspiration can come from anywhere. You know, I, one of the first questions that aspiring speechwriters always ask is how do you how do you get over writer's block? You know, the fear of the blank page, and um, I have some answers for that, but but. But one of the ways that, you know, you just kind of avoid it is by reading widely, um, and not just kind of the quote unquote, the morning news, but also opinion pieces, long form pieces, just anything that'll get the creative juices flowing, help you think about something in a different way. But, um, as far as, as your kind of journalism goes, we, you know, I would read six papers every morning. We had a media monitor whose job it was. It was usually the, the youngest member of the research team to send around press clips. Um, all day long. I mean, we'd probably get, I used to create a separate folder for them to filter them out. Cause you'd get two, 300 news stories a day, and you can't possibly read them all, but um, I just scan the subject line in the email and see if, if it was worth doing. There are times when um, we would rely on the morning stories for speeches uh, and that's usually on the campaign trail when you need to come up with, you know, some new rhetorical line of attack each day. Um, what? How could we spin the news of the day to our advantage? So, definitely on a campaign trail, when Obama's out giving the same stump speech every single day, we would be inhaling the news to uh, try to spice up whatever he was saying on the trail on a daily basis. I, I think it—I I honestly think it was pretty rare that a story like yours would really shape a speech in a big, profound way. It—it—it um, it, it was, and that's not to say that they couldn't, but uh, it was rare. You know, typically we might find. Um, Where it was really useful is we might find something that a politician had said that we could key off of, you know, to go on a, on a fun little tear and get the crowd riled up. Um, But by and large, you know, like, I I think what you did is pretty rare.